Good morning. Now, maybe you've heard this story that I found this week already. I don't know, but um, I thought it was pretty good. So it's about these two battleships that were out, and they were assigned doing some uh, training missions and everything for the U.S. Navy, and they'd been at sea on maneuvers and some heavy weather for several days. And one evening, the visibility was especially poor uh, due to a patchy fog. And so the captain had remained on the bridge, and he's keeping an eye on everything that's going on. Well, shortly after dark, the lookout that's on the wing calls out. He says, light bearing on the starboard bow. Well, the captain asks, is it steady or is it moving astern? And the lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant that they were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. So the captain called out to the signalman, signal that ship. We're on a collision course. Advise you to change course 20 degrees. Well, back came the signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. And the captain said, send. I'm a captain change course 20 degrees. The reply came, I'm a seaman second class and you had better change course 20 degrees. By the time, that time the captain's furious, and if you are here last week, you know captains don't always have the best frame of mind, but he gets mad, so he spits out, send, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. And then back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse. So the battleship changed course. Today we're going to be talking about authority. This captain thought he had some authority in the situation, and he did have some. There was a greater authority that was directly ahead of him. This morning we're going to be continuing our series called Everyday Hope, and we're looking about how Jesus is our true hope. We've been studying through the letter of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter's letter to Christians in Asia Minor. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 2 of 1 Peter. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. Now we're getting into Peter's main concern in this passage. The reason why he's writing or some instruction for um, the reason that he's writing. And what we're going to be, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. And so let's start by reading in verses 11 and 12 from 1 Peter 2 where he writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here's what we might call the thesis statement for everything that's coming after in this section. He begins his instructions in this letter by calling his readers dear friends. And he's reminding them that even though They are aliens and they're exiles in a foreign land. They're still loved both by God and by Peter. As a reminder, this letter was written to Christians who we think were both Jewish and Gentile believers. They are scattered in different areas of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Here's a map of uh, the area. This is actually from Paul's journeys, but it gives you a good idea you can see the areas that we've been talking about, Asia, Galatia, Bithynia, and Pontus, Cappadocia. Um, those are where Peter is writing to. So it's a fairly large area in what is uh, modern-day Turkey and what they call Asia Minor and everything. So Peter begins this letter by addressing them as exiles way back in chapter 1. And he does it again here as well in verse 11. But he also calls them foreigners here. And Peter is writing, he's, again, to encourage these people because 
they're living their lives and they're facing difficult times or going through some trials and persecution and suffering. And Peter then moves on to his instructions and he starts by urging them to abstain from sinful desires. And he tells you why they should keep themselves from giving in to their sinful desires. He says that these desires, are they, they wage against your soul. They're waging war against your soul. So Peter's letting his readers know that the sinful desires, desires like he spoke about in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he, was, where he told them to get rid of things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These desires, they want to harm people. That's, that's kind of what they do. And the battleground, the battleground is their souls. And even though he begins with a negative, that's kind of a negative thing, right? Don't do this. He actually flips it to a positive. He continues with this positive where he tells them, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, as we've seen over the last few weeks, up to this point of his letter, Peter's been laying the groundwork for this teaching. He's been showing how Jesus is the true living hope for all humans. And, and as obedient children of God, Christians should be holy and should build their lives on the rock, on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And now we start to see the why. Peter tells him to live such good lives among the pagans, and pagans is just a word that means non-Christians or non-believers, but they should live such good lives among the pagans that even the pagans will see that there is something different about them. Something appealing, something that even though they go through trials and pains, even though they're being accused of doing something wrong, these people will continue to live in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. And that's what we're focusing on today, this bringing glory and honor to God. So you're going to hear that a lot. And by living this way, other people are going to start to take notice. By living this way, others are going to see how God can work in their lives, and they may start to wonder they, they, they may begin to ask questions and, and begin to really truly see how God works. And hopefully they start to draw closer to God themselves and following him, loving him, glorifying him when he returns. That should be why we live in such a way. It's not really for our benefit. I mean, we get benefit from it, but it's not primarily for us. It's for the benefit of those who don't know God. God uses, his, uses us in his plan to draw people who don't know him closer to him. We've got to be willing, though, to live not as the world lives, but to live as citizens of the kingdom of God under God's authority. Ultimately, Peter's trying to help reorient his readers' understanding of this. They are, as one writer puts it, citizens first of God's holy nation and therefore not primarily citizens, which, are for, which means they're aliens or foreigners, of the society in which they live to whatever extent the two conflict. So what did this look like for believers at the time? What does that look like for us today? That's what Peter starts to unfold in the next part of his letter as we read in verses 13 through 17. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent to him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. 
Peter writes to submit yourselves to every human authority, whether that be the emperor or the, lo- the, the local governors. Now, we've been talking about being countercultural as Christians, and that would be pretty countercultural, I think. But let's start and look at what this meant for the people in the first century, the original audience, because we've got to know the context to be able to apply it to us today. So in the first century, the world that these people lived in was basically controlled by the Roman Empire. Everything on this map, so this is a map of the Roman Empire, and everything that you see in red and purple, or purple and green, I'm sorry, purple and green, that is what was controlled by the Roman Empire during this time, during the first century. Which meant that the emperor in Rome, the local governors from Rome, appointed by Rome, were the ruling authorities. And as we've spoken about, the Jewish people, they were looking for relief from this. They were looking for rescue from this. And so they were looking for the Messiah, who is the king, who is going to come and save and rescue his people. And and they believed that this Messiah was going to bring them out from under this Roman occupation and, and, and rule. But that's not really what happened. What happens is Jesus... And Jesus, who is the true Messiah, he comes, and instead of being this conquering king, liberating king, he lives a humble life. I mean, people didn't even know that he was born. There were a lot of people who didn't even know that the Messiah had been born. Born in a manger to a teenage girl, and it's, he lived an entire humble life from what we've read. And he's essentially, or not essentially, he's eventually put on trial and then executed. But three days following his death, Jesus is resurrected. And again, he defies expectations because, again, people are probably like, hey, you've got to be the right person now. You came back from the dead. But he defies expectations because he doesn't immediately begin to rule as this conquering king like we would think of and liberate his people from Rome. But instead he returns to heaven and then he sends his spirit down as the church begins under the apostles' discipleship or under the apostles' leadership. So the Roman Empire is still in control over Israel as well as much of the rest of the human world or the known world at this time when this letter is written. And as Peter writes to his readers, they are to submit themselves to every human authority, including the emperor and local governors. Now, the word authority here, it like literally means the institution of it. He's not referring to individual laws, but the institution that makes the laws. And I think that's an important distinction that we need to make. You can submit yourself to the institution without submitting necessarily to the laws that might violate God's word. As an example, I have three examples here. You have the example in the book of Daniel of Daniel and his friends refusing the king's dietary restrictions, but they did it in such a way that they did not dishonor the king. Then also in Daniel, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bend the knee before an idol statue to worship this statue that the king had erected. They didn't disrespect the king, but they said that they would not serve his gods or worship this false image. Another example comes from the book of Acts, where Peter and other apostles disobeyed the commands of the Jewish council to stop preaching in Jesus's name. As Warren Wiersbe writes, they didn't cause a rebellion or in any way question or deny the authority of the council. They submitted to the institution 
but they refused to stop preaching. They showed respect to their leaders, even though these men were opposed to the gospel. So as one commentator puts it, the principle to be drawn from these passages is obey except when commanded to sin. That is the Christian's responsibility toward all forms of rightful human authority, whether the individual Christian agrees with all the policies of the authority or not. So so what about today, then? That was first century. What about today? I mean, does this teaching still apply to us in the world that we currently live in? Should we still submit ourselves to every human authority? I would argue that it does, and we should. So now comes the question, well, how, how do you think we're doing in that area? Like, how, how do you think that's going? Are we submitting ourselves to authority well? In some areas, probably, yeah. And in other areas, probably not. I think we've seen that over the last eight or more years where this has been the case. Some might even suggest that the areas where we are not um, submitting ourselves is starting to outweigh the areas where we do. And I'm not sure. Like, I, I think this has to be something that is an individual decision. It has to be an individual action because you can only control you. And like Peter, I would say to you, submit yourselves to every human authority when they're not asking you to sin. Why? It's for the Lord's sake. That's what he writes here. We do this not for ourselves, but for God. Meaning we submit to authority in order to point others to the Lord and glorify and honor him. Part of this is because God is the one who's established the authority in the first place. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So God has established the authority, and in order to bring glory and honor to him, we submit ourselves to it when it doesn't ask us to sin. And again, I think that is a very important point to make, and I'm going to keep, you know, keep harping on that. Like, it's when they're not asking us to sin. So that's the why, but what about the how? Well, we start to see that in verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. God's will is for believers to do good no matter what the consequences. And by doing good, we honor the Lord. This isn't the world's good, though, by the way. Like, this is the good as defined by God. By doing good, we honor the Lord and we can silence the ignorant talk of foolish people because you're not going to be giving them, honestly, anything to talk about if you're doing good. For the original readers of this letter, they were exiles, they were aliens in a foreign country. Oftentimes people were strang- who were strangers were and f- are far more scrutinized by doing good and being law-abiding citizens, submitting themselves to authority. They would help change the narrative around Christians at that time. That culture marginalized Christians because they were different. But that brings us back to the thought we began with last week. Like, how different are we than the rest of the world as Christians? I mean, we want to be different. We want to stand out from the world in a positive way in order to bring honor and glory to God and to show people the way to Jesus. And we do that by doing good. Well, then what are they going to say about you? Like, what can they do to you? If, if they don't like you, even after you do good, 
who cares? Like, the only one you need to worry about how they see you is God. And if you need a reminder about how God sees you, just turn back to the previous section in this letter and read that again, the first part of chapter 2, or listen to last week's sermon, or do both. Because that's how God looks at you. So don't worry about what people say about you or even to you when you're doing good. But I thought about, I was thinking about this when I was writing it in, and, you know, these people still reject the Lord a lot of times, and that should still break our hearts. Like, we shouldn't give up on people because they've, they've given up on God. Like, we don't need to give up on them. God wants everyone to come to redemption through Jesus. So we continue in verse 16, where Peter says, Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Live as the free people that you are. But understand that freedom is not a license to do whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, especially as a follower of Jesus. Peter tells them, live as God's slaves. And that is a strong word. Meaning we first and foremost submit ourselves to the authority of God. As Christians, our lives are not ours. We were bought with a price. And so we give up certain rights that we think we should have or that non-believers think people should have. We give up these rights because we know that God knows better. Because he created everything. Surely he's got a better perspective on things than what we do. And so we put ourselves under the authority of the creator. And then Peter finishes this section by giving us four ways to accomplish this, telling us how we can do good, and like he said in verse 15. The first one is to show proper respect to everyone. Show proper respect to everyone. They're made in God's image as well as you, as well as us, as Christians. They are also made in God's image, so show them the respect that they deserve because they're made in God's image. We may not agree with them. We probably don't, but we can still respect them. The second thing, he says, is to love the family of believers. Like, we need to love each other in a way that just outshines the way other people love each other. John 13, 34, Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you. Think about how Jesus loved us. That's how we must love one another. Love the family of believers. And then third, which feels like it should be first, but fear God. Fear God. And this is not like some terrifying fear of the Lord. It is awe and reverence. Deuteronomy 6, 5, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength. And that extends, you know, like you, you, you know that you are doing this when you are following God and his commandments. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Like, that shows it. And then the fourth one, honor the emperor. Now, we don't have an emperor, regardless of what some people may think, 
But I think we can apply this still to modern-day politicians. I think we can apply this to our bosses. I think we can apply this to anybody that we have over us in authority, even if we disagree with their politics or their stances on things or whatever, we can still honor the office. We can honor the people. So that's the first thing. Now, Peter starts to give some examples of what this looks like, and he does it through a household context. And the first of these he talks about is slavery. And this is talking about household slavery and everything. And we'll explain that here in a minute. And then next week, Rick is going to continue this um, with husbands and wives. So he's continuing with this example, what it looks like to live good lives, as he addresses the next part of his letter to the slaves. So First Peter two eighteen through 20, he says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, there are a few things we need to kind of identify and figure out right off the bat here. The first thing is that first century slavery, the ancient slavery that we read about in, that we read about in the Bible, it's, it's not the same as the slavery that, that we kind of know and understand through American history. Um, it, it's, it's not the same. Like, there was a, the, the slave trade was a really big thing in American history. It really wasn't a big thing in the first century. Um, the slaves based on race was a big thing, obviously, in American history. It was not in the first century. Like, there are very, very significant differences. Um, oftentimes people go into servitude or, or, you know, first century slavery to pay a debt or to escape poverty. And this was, slavery was incredibly common. This type of slavery was incredibly common during the time of the New Testament. Nearly 30% of the population were living as slaves or servants, but they could be educated and serve as doctors or lawyers, according to one source that I read. So it wasn't exactly the same. Also, Peter, even though he's writing to slaves, is not condoning slavery. Too many times passages in Scripture have been used to justify slavery, and that's just not actually there. There are passages in Scripture where it talks about slavery and the slave trade being wrong and evil. Exodus 21, 16, 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, they both have um, references there. The problem comes in the fact that this is a fallen, broken world, broken by sin, and, and there are so many evil things that God has never ordained, but that people have come up with, and slavery is only one example of that. So what we see in the Bible, according to author Dan Kimball in his book, How Not to Read the Bible, is this. Here's what he says. God giving, it's God giving instructions to regulate a pre-existing way of life that was pervasive at the time. Slavery was everywhere in the ancient world embedded in the economic and social institutions of those times. God did not affirm or endorse slavery, but worked within the cultural framework of that time to begin a longer process of transformation that would lead to moving people out of slavery in any and every form. 
Basically, what that means is that the institution of slavery, it was so widespread, it was so ingrained in the culture that it could not be taken down all at once because, as one writer puts it, doing so would have resulted in mass persecution and would have slowed the spread of Christianity. Now, Peter here, you know, he's, he's talking directly to slaves and he's giving instruction. And that did happen in the first century letters, uh, the Greco-Roman letters that we've, we know of that slaves would be taught directly, but it was never quite like this. Or like any time slaves are mentioned in the New Testament. Peter is elevating them in dignity and as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what doesn't happen. But that's what Peter does. He elevates these people. He's teaching them the same thing he's been teaching, to submit themselves to their authority, because that is what will honor God. He's trying to take the focus off their situation and place it squarely on the Lord. Because God is the one who is never changing. God is the one who will bring true justice. And even though you go through unjust suffering, even though they went through unjust suffering, God is still there with you. And we know he will do that because he's been there in Jesus. And that's what Peter reminds his readers in the rest of this passage, the rest of chapter 2. He says, To this you were called, in verse 21, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We follow in God or in Jesus' footsteps. And he placed his full trust in God, in the Father. And we do the same thing. Regardless of what authority is above us. The whole point of this passage is that when we submit ourselves to the human institutions of authority that God has put in place, or when we submit ourselves to people um, who are over us, who may even lord it over us, then we honor God. Because God is who this is all about. It's not about the authority. It's not about us. It's always, always about God and giving him the honor and the glory due him as our creator and our savior. And if we get some trickle-down effect from that, that, that we you know, have the ignorant talk silenced and so on and so forth, great. That's awesome. But if we don't get that, it really doesn't matter because God sees what you're doing. And if you're shining a light for him, he's going to see that. And this life may be difficult, and it will be difficult, because Jesus said it will be difficult. He said that this world, in this world, you will see troubles, but he has overcome the world. Now, you may think this world's going downhill, and I think that there are areas where it is, but that is not the end of the story. The real end of the story is that Jesus has already overcome this world, and he's coming back to set things right, to set things the way God originally intended it. 
And that's the life that God calls you to. It's one of service. It's one of submission. You're not going to get a lot of notoriety from it. In fact, most of the time, nobody's even going to see or know that you did anything. It's not an easy life, but it is worth it. Ah, it's so worth it. Nobody else may see what you do, but God does. And so we invite you into that life today if you're not there yet. We invite you to make it public through baptism or to join this community here at Maple Grove and see what God's going to do here and in the future. Most importantly, though, we invite you to follow Jesus because that's the first and absolutely most important step that you have to take. Submit yourselves to his authority, the ultimate authority. And then... As we've lived these lives as servants of God, even in the difficult times, even when we're going through persecution and suffering and pain, one day we will go before the Lord and we will hear some wonderful words where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I think when we hear those words, we'll know that everything else that we went through on this earth will be worth it. So worth it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are worth it. You had a plan even when we disobeyed. You put this plan in place so many years ago. And 2,000 years ago, it culminated. Well, at least there's a very high peak in Jesus. But we know that the story did not end on that cross. And honestly, we know the story didn't end in the empty tomb either. Because it is a story that never ends because of you. You know all things. You are in control of all things. And so I ask that we would submit to the authorities that you've put in place over us, that you would help us to do that, that you would help us to quit worrying about the things of this world and start worrying about the things of your kingdom that we would help bring others, that we would shine a light so bright that we can't help but bring others to draw others near you. Help us to be that reflection that you meant us to be. Help us to bear your image well. Help us to do good as Peter tells us to do good. And thank you for Jesus for showing us the way for being the way. Thank you for him dying on a cross and thank you for him coming back to take his throne. It's in his name that I pray.